Let's pray. Father, as we uh, come in here and um, just, as it were, bow before you, Lord, we hear that thunder and we are reminded that you are a big God. You're a great God. Of the heavens, above the earth, and yet, Lord, through your Son, you con condescended to be born as an infant to this sinful world and yet Lord you did it as we've been reminded already for a real purpose that is unto eternity and so Lord I pray tonight as we at this morning as we look at your word again that you would as as if we were newborn infants open our hearts and our minds to see to savor to enjoy the person of Jesus Christ and his great finished work on the cross. Father, I pray again that you'd help me um, to work through this and that none here would drift away but would be attentive to your voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, Chapel Street. It's good to be back. Uh, it's good to see some of you last night that are here again today and some others that have come along too. Um, before I start, I do need to kind of make an apology uh, because I didn't check of the Bodhi Bochum um, message that was given a few weeks ago that Warren mentioned. Um, instead, I was busy preparing this message, and it just so happens it's on exactly the same passage <laughs> that Bodhi Bochum preached on. Um, but I'm pleased to say that he completely agrees with everything I'm about to say. Um, <laughs> But if nothing else, um, some of you will get to hear some of it again. If you weren't here, you'll get to hear it anew. Christmas Eve is upon us. It's been said several times already. It comes but once a year. And in every sense, we ought to be worshipping Christ the King as Christmas every single day. But we get this opportunity once a year to spend more time in this perfect picture this uh, emotionally beautiful, perfect picture of the incarnation of the Son of God. But, you know, Christmas isn't like that for everyone. And yet it's staggering to me that so many people in the West don't know God and yet celebrate Christmas. It's bizarre. Think about it. If you're not a Muslim, would you celebrate Ramadan? That's the level of absurd, absurdity there is around the Western world celebrating Christmas. But in truth, it doesn't really celebrate Christmas. In fact, it celebrates anything but Christmas. Now, one of our younger daughters at the age of 26 asked her mum and dad this Christmas if we would take her around town to see the Christmas lights. And uh, there's a sense of excitement that comes upon me when one of my daughters asks that. I love going out and looking at the Christmas lights. But this year, <clears throat> although there'd be many, you'd be hard-pressed to find anything about Christmas. Anything at all. Santa. Nothing to do with Christmas. Nothing to do with Christmas. Snowmen. We don't even have snow in this country, at least not around this area, although some locals would say different. Mm -hmm. Nothing to do with Christmas. Elves? 
Where are they in the Bible? Reindeer? It's, it's terrifying. I, I was just really shocked. There's a house just around the corner from us, though, that has a nativity scene. And behind it is the cross. I'm going to pay them a visit at some point. That was a real standout. But there is something exciting. But it's clear that the world does not know what Christmas is. It thinks it's something totally different. It's transformed it into something that is not Christmas. And I want to say this, the world has accepted the flavor of Christmas, but denied the Christ in Christmas. It's got a sense of the excitement and the gift giving and the lights and the eating and the, the rest and even the holiday but it's not got Christ in the center of it. And if Christ is not in the center of Christmas, then it's not Christmas. There's a warning in that for us. And we need to be careful that we do not deny Christ his place in Christmas, that we realize it is about him. It is about his work. And so you won't be surprised to know so that's where we're going in this passage. And some people might say, well, look, this isn't a Christmas passage. Um, I spoke to someone about it yesterday and they said, oh, not heard that preached as a, a Christmas message before. But it is about Christmas. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. That's Christmas. That's the incarnation. That's the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to understand around that picture that truth that reality that christ came into the world what it all means for us so again like last night if you weren't here we looked at but wise like little children we became five-year-olds again and looked at but wise and we looked at but hows there's a few more for us to gain so i'm going to read the passage to us again and then we'll get into it if you've got your bibles please open them you'll need to open them Otherwise, you won't know whether what I'm saying is true. So Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, and really I'm just focusing on 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. I want to say to you right away, in that in those two verses is the full picture of Christmas. It's all here. Every bit of it is here. We need to understand that. I've just got a few key points, and we're going to use the, the very word just to give us the points rather than me creating something artificial. Uh, there are five of them, and uh, we've still got plenty of time, so we should be able to get through them all. The first point is simply the first part of the verse but when the fullness of time had come god sent forth his son god is lord over time time is a part of the creation you might talk about space time continuance but space is part of the creation <laughs> he creates time he creates days that's how he expresses his creation the planet Earth spins around 24 hours it takes to get round. Sun sets at one, one end of the day, 
which is the beginning. Sleep with me. And it rises at the other end of the day. It also revolves around the sun. And that's how we get our 365 days. Or 364 and a quarter, if you want to be absolutely precise. God loves time. He creates time. And in God's economy, there is a time and a place for everything. His word tells us there is a time to be born. That's not an accident. It's predetermined. There is a time to live. There's even in the word of God, a time to dance. And he says at the end of that, there's a time to die. God ordains things within time. He uses time to play out the events of his story in his creation. It wouldn't be easy to exist without time. It would make no sense, would it? And Jesus' coming into the world isn't an accident of time either. It's a particular event that was purposed. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. It indicates very simply that God has a plan. He's waiting for a time to enact another part of the story, the big part, the incarnation. He has a plan. And if he has a plan, then he has a purpose. Because that's what plans are for. If you, this is a poor analogy, but if you plan to make a cake, you need to get the ingredients together and then you need to do that really mystical part, cooking, whatever that is, baking. I'm not very good at that stuff. But the purpose is to create a cake. The plan has a purpose. Project manager's plan has a purpose. And he runs it on his timetable. We're all familiar what timetables are. When I was a kid and I, I used to go to school uh, at a particular point, a particular school, in order to get there, I always tell a long story to my kids about how to walk about 100 miles and do all these various things. But I basically had to walk to the village, had to catch a train, and from the train to the next station, I had to get on the school bus. And there was always this moment of catching the train where even though there was a timetable, the train might not come on time. It never came early. Coming early would have perhaps worked as long as it was there, but it always came late. It came out of time, and it was frustrating because there's a small schoolboy sitting on a cold platform waiting for a train that if it was late, I would miss my bus. You'd be kind of anxious, you know, that feeling of, I'm not going to make the connection. I'm going to miss it somehow. But there was also that feeling of slight excitement that if you did miss the bus, you could just come home and not go to school. <laughs> so it's an ambivalent thing but often when it was late you'd be looking at your watch thinking well, it's meant to be here this time where is it it's not happened what's going on and the only person you could turn to was the station master and you'd say what's the go <laughs> the train's not here it's meant to be here at this time is it going to come and the station master would give the same answer every time it'll be here when it arrives <laughs> it'll be here when it arrives it never satisfied me because obviously it wouldn't be there if it didn't arrive. I knew that when the train arrived, it would be there. I mean, that's basic physics, right? It's absurd. But what was he really saying? He's really saying, I don't know. <laughs> It'll turn up at some point, right? 
Not so with God. God's timing is perfect. When the fullness of time had come, he sent forth his son. It wasn't late. It wasn't early. It was the very second that he planned with his timetable. And God obviously had a fullness of time. <laughs> he didn't want to rush things. His plan was perfect. It is perfect. And so he knew when exactly his son would come, and he ordained that. Think about it for a second. Jesus could have come at other times, couldn't he? A good time for Jesus to come might have been just after the fall. Adam and Eve had rebelled against God. The fall came. There was a curse, sin, and death now entered the world. That would have been a great time, I would have thought, for Jesus to come and reconcile all things to himself. But he didn't come then. He could have come before the flood. The whole of humanity, apart from Noah and his family, were rebelling against God. That would have been a good time to come. But no, God brought judgment. He brought a picture of an ark. He brought a, a, sal a saving picture, a salvific picture for that family and for us to see. And we have rainbows. A beautiful reminder that I'll not do that again. Could have come when Abraham was there. Could have come when Isaac was there. It could have come where jo Jacob or, or Israel was there and the sons or where they got taken into captivity in Egypt. Interesting, the timing of that was essential. Joseph had to be there, second in control of Egypt. And at that time, a great feast and famine came in Israel. It says, by God. That's what Stephen says in the New Testament. God brought a great famine in Israel, in, in Canaan. And so they went down. God's timing is perfect. He could have brought Jesus then. But no, he brought a Moses, a prophet, a redeemer in the, in the physical sense as a picture of the one who was going to come in the fullness of time. You're getting the picture? He could have come at any time. But God ordained this time, 3,900, whatever it was, you said earlier, years after Adam, 2,000 plus years ago from now. He's always on time to the second. And what time did he choose? Well, after the last prophet had spoken in the Old Testament, was silence. There was nothing from God. Silence, no, no writing, <clears throat> not that can be called the Bible. And then, in that context, God put things in place. Think about Israel what was in place when Jesus arrived? The Romans, the ones that crucify people. The Jews don't crucify people, right? it's a curse. The Romans are the ones that crucify people. Well, God had that in place, that was prophesied right in the beginning, by the way, in creation, or just after creation. Chapter 3 of Genesis. The Pharisees were in place. They had the law in their hands. But they weren't righteous. They thought they were. They thought if they could just legally perform well, they would be declared righteous. It was all about them, wasn't it? Oh, they were rife. There's great rebellion amongst the Jews. There's so many different sects. The Essenes, the Zealots, all claiming to be Jews, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, different theology. That's when Christ came. Timing is perfect. 
And he chose that time because it fulfilled something around the fullness. So that's the first point. Point number two, we're just going to compound these verses by reading them all so that you get them. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Now, I just want to kill straight away any bad thinking about what this text is about. This text is not about Mary. Of course, it's Mary that is the woman. But that's not what this text is not about, Mary. It's about the man that was born of a woman. We had to print some T-shirts recently from a, a group elsewhere. And uh, I was in two minds about whether we should print them at all. And uh, the T-shirt was from a, a women's group in a different kind of church. And it just said on the front, possession of Mary. Possession of Mary. I belong to Mary. Something like that. I've got it a little bit wrong. I belong to Mary. So that possession of Mary. Like, what? The story's not Mary. Mary's not mentioned in the epistles. Oh, here, loosely, if you will, of a woman. But it's not the woman that we're focusing on. It's the one who is born of a woman. So what is this text really saying? It's saying that the Son of God was a man. You're born of a woman. I'm born of a woman. It means I'm flesh. That's the part, if you will, that is Jesus. He's born the same way that you're born, unto flesh. The word became and dwelt amongst us. There it is. That's what he's saying. Not about Mary. Please don't get caught up on that. It's about the man. Literally means that God became flesh. I mentioned that last night. And so here's a why. <laughs> why? But why? Why was he born of a woman? Why was he made flesh? Well, firstly, to identify with us. Because we're made of flesh. Yes, we've got a spirit. But we're made of flesh. And so he identifies with us but also so that we can identify with him. You see, when he became made of flesh, he suffered. He was tempted, the Bible says, in every way, yet without sin. You can identify with that, can you? I can, maybe it's just me. Can you identify with that? Do you suffer? Do you get tempted? Well, so did Jesus Christ. And like us, he's able to suffer. Can God suffer? It's a big theological question. If he doesn't become flesh, it's tricky. He's able to live. He's able to suffer. He's able to bleed and die. Born of a woman. More than that, though, he's able to be the person that is the great high priest. We've been looking at that in Hebrews. He's able to be the person that is the one who can offer the sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. But he's also able to be the one that's being offered. Without being flesh, how could he do that? You see how it fits? It's not just a baby in the manger. 
If he's not born of a woman, he simply couldn't do it. Spirit can't take on sin. We'll talk about that in a second. Okay, point number three. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent, his, sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, the literal meaning of this is born as a Jew. That's what it means. Now, we're all under the law. But that's the, the phrasing that's, that's put here for us, the, the meaning of the phrasing, born as a Jew. But we can't stop there, can we? Because under the law, as a Jew, means something. Being a Jew means that you are 100% obligated to obey the law. That's where he was born. Do you get it? In a place where he was obligated to obey the law. God, under the law, 100% subject to the law, 100% subject to its authority over him, and 100% subject to the judgment of the law if he got it wrong. Think about it. Just pause and reflect. You know, what is the law? It's just a set of rules. Is that what it is? Well, it is a set of rules. That's fair. But what is it really? Who brought the law? I know Moses, the angels brought it to Moses, Scripture says. And Moses um, brought it to, to the people. But it comes from God. The law is a statement about the holiness of God. It's not just a set of rules. It's a statement about the character of God. When God gives the law, it's like he's saying, this is what I'm like. <laughs> if you want to be righteous like me, then you need to obey these laws. This is a reflection, if you will, of my character. It actually displays something of my glory. The interesting thing is that God is the one that gives the law. It's not invented by people. It's given to the people. Which means that God is above the law, doesn't it? He's the only being that's above the law. But some of us might think sometimes that we're above the law and then get pulled over and ticketed. But we're not. We're under it. And God is above it and he pronounces what it is and then his son is born of a woman under it. Is, that not, is it just me? Or does that not just blow your mind? And God says, here's the law for the people. If they can attain this law, they'll be like me. They'll be righteous. Of course, he knew they wouldn't be able to. So he says, well, I'll put myself under it. Are you crazy? God, why would you do that? He makes himself 100% accountable to his own law. Therefore, he's obligated to obey it. And listen, that's a perilous situation. It's a really perilous situation. Think about it for a second. We know, right, that Jesus Christ obeyed the law. <laughs> he's the only man who did. We know it. But what if he didn't? What if he didn't? Well, the obvious answer is he'd be judged by the Father for his sin. And what? condemned 
as I read one commentator trying to talk about this, it's such a hard thing to express. He said, if that had happened, the whole of the universe would have just imploded and been folded. <laughs> if that had happened. He's born under the law. The only anecdote or analogy rather I could bring, which is woefully inadequate, was to suggest that I might or you might want to study wild animals in the jungle and that your favorite animal might be mine and that's a tiger um, and you might want to study tigers and I guess really if you're going to study a tiger you need to study them at a bit of a distance would you agree but if you really want to study them you're going to need to get up close and personal there's a lot of risk involved in that it's perilous was Jesus going to obey the law Okay, point number four, but why? When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, but why? To redeem those who were under the law. Here's the reason for God's timetable. Here's the reason for the fullness of time. To save a people for his own possession to redeem those under the law, and that is you, and that is me, if you believe. So, end of story. That's it. Well, there's our why. Maybe we should add how. How do you do this, Jesus? A man that was born under a woman, born, born of a woman, born under the law, <clears throat> how do you do it and the answer is now listen carefully by fulfilling the law amen by fulfilling the law the law wasn't going to go away jesus christ's ambition and goal and actual mission was to uphold the law for the vindication and glory of the father because the law matters it matters to the father it's a reflection of his character. It's his holiness. It's all bound up in the law. <clears throat> so in order to do this work, he needed to fulfill it. There's lots of ways that Jesus fulfills the law, but I want to give us two. I want you to really tune into this. It's so important to understand this in Christianity. So the two fundamental ways he fulfills the law shouldn't be a surprise. Number one, by obeying it. And making it work in human flesh. That's, that's what he's doing. He's a, that's, this is what the law is meant to do. It's meant to make people perfect. It's meant to make them righteous. But all men failed because they fell away, because they're born in the line of Adam. But Jesus didn't do that. The law matters to him. He says, don't think I came to abolish it, to get rid of it. It really matters. I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I came to... Fulfill it. So he obeyed, producing righteousness. He got up close to the tiger, as it were. The risk, the peril that Christ was in and all of the cosmos was in. And the second way, and I want to read this twice because it's long <clears throat> and uh, heavy. 
The second way he fulfilled the law was by causing justice to finally occur in accordance with the law and the righteous judgment of God against the sin of the world. I'll say it again. He fulfilled the law by causing justice to finally occur in accordance with the law and the righteous judgment of God against the sins of the world. That's justice. That's fair. And Christ causes that to happen in the fullness of time. But when God judged the sin of the world, when the hammer of the judge came down to wreak wrath and fury against mankind, it fell on Jesus. Amen? Not us. And in doing so, the law was fulfilled. Why? Because the payment was made. See, the law demands a payment for sin. That's what it does. You sinned, here's the law. You fail. The judgment of God is wrath, fury, death, and hell. But instead of us getting that, Christ Jesus gets it. Our baby in a manger becomes a man and goes to the cross to redeem a people by fulfilling the law, by pleasing God the Father, by upholding the righteousness of God, by saying this law matters. I'm going to vindicate my Father. We need to pay for this law, and I'm going to do it. And only I can because I am the one who righteously obeyed the law. I fulfilled it in all its letter. Not one dot and tittle was not fulfilled in Christ. I find it amazing. It fell on him and not on us. And the law was fulfilled. God was satisfied. The holy character of God was vindicated. And as a result, you were justified. You were made right with God. And because of that one act, you're redeemed. You're redeemed to redeem those under the law. Now, the word redeemed means to pay, to buy something, to buy someone out of slavery. Sometimes we use the word ransom. To make the payment, to release someone, is to redeem them. And we are purchased, as it were, by his blood. We are moved from one place to another. And the result is that we get forgiveness. If there's no forgiveness, we couldn't be moved. I'm just going to read uh, Romans 8. If you've got your Bibles, please turn there with me, because this says it so perfectly, much better than any of us could ever think of saying it. We all know how Romans 8 begins. There is therefore now... There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that's the saved. Listen, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus, what from? The law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, couldn't do. We couldn't be saved by obeying the law because we couldn't obey the law. Listen, how? By sending his own son in the fullness of time 
in the likeness of sinful flesh, born of a woman, and for sin, he condemned sin, sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now that last line is a whole message all on its own, but it's a, it's a parallel to this passage in Galatians, isn't it? It explains how Jesus redeems by fulfilling the law. He had to become flesh to do that. It had to be born under the law. It had to be the right time when God sent him. But there's another why. What for? What was the point of all of this? Okay, I get it. Jesus is the incarnated God, becomes a man, obeys the law perfectly and fulfills it, dies on the cross and fulfills it and upholds the glory of God, <coughs> redeems a people. Well, let's just look at the last line. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that, this must be the answer, we might receive adoption as sons. You see, as we heard from Vody Bochum, we are under Adam. <clears throat> Adam is our federal head. It literally means that at the top of the tree, if you go back through all those generations, we get to Adam. We're born in that line. Now, I know that we're not necessarily Israeli. Some of us are very, if you look at my family, very mixed up in different cultures. But if you go back, I'm under Adam. That means something terrible. That means that I inherited the sin of Adam. My nature, when I was born of a woman, was sin. My body is sinful. It does sin. It commits sin. It seeks its own. It loves itself. It doesn't seek God. And so Adam is my federal head. You are the same. <laughs> You're exactly the same. But when we shift, or when we are shifted by God, by trusting and believing in the person of Jesus Christ, our federal head changes. We're no longer of that line according to the flesh. We're now of the line of the second Adam. Adam means man. The second perfect Adam, Jesus Christ, born of a woman, under the law, but obeyed. I love uh, Romans 3, which talks about the power of the law to condemn so that every mouth is stopped. In Romans 23, all have sinned and fall uh, fall short of the glory of God. And then he talks about how God passed over former sins. He didn't judge. He held back. Passed over them until the fullness of time came. And at the end of that section, it tells us that he put his son forward as a payment, as a propitiation by his blood, which he couldn't have if he wasn't made of flesh. And at the end of that, he says, so that God can be just. So that God can be just, so that his law would be fulfilled, so that he would bring judgment down on the basis of his law, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who is faith in Christ Jesus. 
We move from the family of Adam to the family of God. That's what adoption is. You're not going to get in any other way. You don't have a right to be there. You can't say, well, I'm perfect. You can't say, well, I'm of a great family or I have enough money or I've done enough good deeds. You don't have a right to be there. The only place you and I have a right to be is hell, where the judgment continues. So we're adopted. It's the only way you're going to get into this family is by adoption. The federal head has to shift from a sinful dead person. We need to become declared righteous and finally alive as a Christian. The Bible puts it like that, like this. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins amen that's how you get saved that's the whole point of this folks this christmas i want you to remember i know we say it every year but i really want you to focus i need to focus on this i'm talking to myself you should do the same make christ the center of christmas pause reflect when you're eating turkey or whatever you eat in your household we're doing this because of Jesus, not because of some secular festival. We're doing this because of Jesus. Remember that he was born at the right time. God sent his son in the fullness of time. Remember that he was born of a woman, he's really flesh. Remember that he was born under the law, that he fulfilled the law, and that through fulfilling the law, he redeemed the people. That could be forgiven. They're no longer connected to Adam, continuing in sin, but connected to Christ, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is now a holy and acceptable worship and act towards God. Because the train of God isn't finished. It's still chugging along. There's another station to come. With a with a train that is the church right now between this station and the next. I want you to get this. In the fullness of time, God will send forth his son again. But this time he won't be born of a woman. Because he already has been. As we know, he died on the cross. He was buried and he rose again as a body that ate, that could be touched. We've seen him, we beheld him, we touched him. So he doesn't need another body. This body is now glorified, he's ascended, and he's coming again. So in the fullness of time, God will send his son again, not born of a woman, not under the law. Why? Because he's fulfilled it. The judgment has fallen in accordance with the law and the sin of, according to the sin of people. This time, do you know what he's doing? Two things. He's coming to collect you. Because you're his adopted children. If you're still here when he comes, he might call you home in the meantime. But if not, he's coming to collect you. He's coming to get you. And secondly, he's coming to destroy 
the nations. This is serious business. This is serious stuff. Those nations are the ones that rejected Christ, rejected the offering of salvation, the free gift of grace that any one of us can take when we hear the gospel and we're compelled by the Spirit to move towards Christ and beg for mercy and beg for forgiveness. That's what transfers us from the federal head of Adam to the federal head of Christ. He's going to destroy the nations and he's going to rule as the king of kings and the lord of lords. And you might say to me, I don't believe you. And uh, that's okay. Well, if you don't believe me, let's have a little listen to the word of God, what it actually says. Revelation 19. Then, then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire on the head of many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows except himself, but he is, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. cross, ascension, return. This is him, the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on the white horse, on white horses. From the mouth come, from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written. You know what the name is? King of and Lord of. Don't trivialize Christmas, friends. Yes, it is the baby in the manger, but it's also the righteous redeemer on the cross. It's also the conquering King of kings and Lord of lords who will in the fullness of time be sent forth again for the last days will come. That timetable is set. And you might say to me, when's it coming? My answer would be, you'll know when it gets here. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, drink in and uh, take in the truth of your word, the magnificence of the Lord Jesus Christ, the uh, power of the gospel, uh, we just want to thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you came as a hum in a humble, small backyard, so to speak, stable, and yet you rose to the cross and from the cross you went to the grave and from the grave you resurrected and people saw you and they touched you and they knew you and since then lord you opened our eyes i thank you and i praise you for that this christmas and lord we look for the fullness of time to come again when you will send him again help us lord in this 
Christmas to consider Christ all the time and to walk well and to look for your return. In Jesus' name, amen.